This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Upcase turns junior Rails developers into senior level badasses. We're not a boot camp, we're a finishing school. Visit upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. Um, hopefully it won't rain for the next hour or so. Yeah, so <laughs> does that have some bearing on recording? Yes. It knocks out our internet. It, uh, our internet is carried on laser beams, <laughs> which I'm told should not be impacted by the rain. And yet every time it rains anything more than a sprinkle, our internet goes out. Like today, all morning it was pretty flaky, then it stopped raining. And then this afternoon, it started getting flaky again. And like, sure enough, I'd look outside and be like, oh, yeah, it's raining. And then it would stop and it'd be fine for five minutes. <laughs> Come back out, look outside. Okay, I see. But it does say it's supposed to be clear for just cloudy for the next hour. So hopefully. <laughs> okay. Awesome. This has never happened in the history of pot. Nobody's been like, <laughs> I hope it doesn't rain so we can record our podcast. It's never happened. Hi, Lila. Hi, Derek. Um, I've been playing with Django lately and Python. Uh, oh, yeah? Not just because of the episode that Sean and Mike Burns did a little while ago, but we've actually been getting more and more Python and Django clients, and we don't have as many developers to service those clients. So George, one of our developers sent out an e who does do Python and Django work, sent out an email asking if anybody was interested. And so I figured, like, you know, there are other things that are vastly different than Ruby that I'm interested in, but this is you know not that vastly different from Ruby, but also applicable to billable client work. So I've been digging into Python and Django, which I'd never written before. That sounds really fun. How's it going? <laughs> um, it's interesting. It's like you know I'd I'd seen Python before and like edited existing scripts before, and I had never seen Django before, other than like glancing at some of George's pull requests on other projects, but I wasn't really able to review them. I'd say like the major difference between Python and Ruby, and this isn't like something that I alone have noticed. It's like a, a thing that people talk about is that Python is much more explicit than Ruby is. So like in Ruby, when you have an instance method, you get self is just this magical value that you can call methods on, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in Python, you pass in self um, as something that you can then use inside that method. So that's how something is an instance method. It takes in self as the first argument. And then also, like, you're, you're importing things, like in several other languages. If you want mm -hmm. to use a package, you have to import it, which is, I enjoy that. <laughs> yes. Right? In Ruby, yes. in Ruby, you put something in the gem file, and then you require it with Bundler, and then it's available everywhere. You know, you can't, yeah. once, you've, once you've let the cat out of the box in one area, it's available every, every single place you want to use it. So um, that's not the case in Python, or at least, you know, in my passing, passing familiarity with Python. And then as I started, like, I started out by just doing... It was kind of interesting because it was one of those situations that people often ask me about. It's like, well, should I learn Rails or should I learn Ruby? And mm -hmm. I never have a good answer for that. And then I was mm -hmm. like, well, should I learn Python or should I learn Django? Let me guess. Let me guess. Okay. What do you think? Did, did? you start with Django? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. That's I have minimal experience with Django and Python. I just like did the basic Django tutorial a couple months ago. 
And yeah, I decided to just start with Django rather yeah. than trying to understand the intricacies of Python. That's exactly that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Yeah. I did the Django tutorial just like you were saying, and it was fine. Like I knew what they were telling me to do. There were some mm -hmm. parts I was like most of the Python I understood and I was like able to draw corollaries to what I'd be doing in Rails for basically everything. And then after I like kind of I went through that basic tutorial, which took me just a few hours and, mm -hmm. you know, I typed it all out, didn't copy and paste things because I wanted to actually try and like do it. Yes. Oh, which so it, I have a question. Yeah, I have a question. Yes. Uh, so in that tutorial, if it's the same one I did, the, all the testing stuff comes at the end. Did you try to test drive it or did you just like follow it and then get to I, the test? At I did the, end? the tutorials and the yeah. tutorial, I think there's six steps and I think testing came at like step three, but like step four, five and six are pretty like small and simple. Mm -hmm. Like it was the, it was the last substantial thing we did in the tutorial was the testing. Yeah. Um, and I was excited to see at least testing was in there. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> For sure. Um, and different types of tests too. They had like unit tests and then they had like tests that were, I guess, akin to what you would call like a controller test. It wasn't like a capybara drive the browser type of test. I don't think it was tough to, tough for me to tell at that point. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I did, I did that whole thing, and then I was like, well, now I've done this tutorial, maybe I should circle back on Python. And so I, I, I looked at like introductions to Python, which was a terrible thing for me to do because they all like Python is a common first language for a lot of people. Right. And so they all start from zero. Mm -hmm. But then I found the actual, the like if you go to the Python website, there's a Python tutorial there. And that seems to me to be more towards like programmers. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to kind of go through that. And I've been, I had been going through that, but this week I've been doing some other work. So I haven't, maybe I'll spend some more time on it on Friday. But the stuff I noticed about Django, again, like it, it comes back to the same stuff about Python. Like Django is more explicit about stuff than, yes. than Rails is. Rails has a lot of implicit behavior and magic behavior, which is helpful. Like when in Django, when you define routes, you're basically just doing regex matches. You are just yes. doing regex matches, right? Yes, which I have to say, reading it, I was a little horrified to start. I mean, you get, like it's just so different from, from your nice Rails routes file, but it is more explicit. There's a lot less magic. It's very, very clear how one thing is being mapped to another. I think I in that case I still like maybe it is because I have that scar tissue built up from dealing <laughs> with how Rails magic works in the router, right? Yeah. But it is so much like it reads so much nicer to me than trying to make sense of these regexes. I guess if you keep them simple, they wouldn't be bad. So that's gonna be the key. Um keep the URL yeah. simple. And they do say a lot of that in the tutorial, um, that like you wanna have these nice clean URLs. Um which Rails gives you as well, but you get that from a DSL rather than just like yes. writing out the URLs you want to map. Yeah, and that was the biggest difference for me going through the Django tutorial. I was like, wow, there are no DSLs here. Mm -hmm. there, there, there just aren't. Unlike right. um, a Rails app where you have 20 different DSLs in <laughs> any given file. Right. That's kind of an exaggeration. But, you know, between Rails itself and your various gems and testing, any file could have several different DSLs operating within it at right. once. Yeah, I would say the only the only thing and I don't even know my level of understanding is not good enough to understand if this is a DSL or if this is some other I mean, I guess it's not really a DSL, but I don't understand if this is it looks like magic to me, where if you the, in their ORM, if you are querying against a field and you want to do like a less than rather than in like in active record, you end up doing a SQL string for that, right? You say like where age less than question mark and then you pass the parameter right but with i believe i'm doing this from memory here but with 
in Python or in Django, you can do age under under like underscore underscore LT, and then pass the <laughs> like I'll I'll find a sample and try and put that in the show notes. But there was some weird stuff where you could chain underscore underscore and then like the next property you were talking about in various oh, places, and I was wondering. Like, DSLE, yeah, kind of. like something must be magically defining those operate those those methods, yeah. um, but I'm not sure. But other than that, I mean, there's no generators. It was weird. Like, there's no generators as far as I can tell, other than the like start the app, right? But there's no like generate me a controller, generate me a resource, that type right. of thing, which I don't use in Rails anymore either. But I definitely did use them when I was getting started. Um, but then oddly, there are like an entire authorization scheme and an admin mm-hmm. app that you get out of the box. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's this so weird, different. like, it's this weird, like no, I mean, it's not mad. They're none of them are magical. Like they're just code and you can go in there and look at them and change them or you can, you know, change the templates or whatever you want to do. But it, it, it's like, and I, I guess that was the other thing that stood out is Django has like almost like rails engines, but more lightweight. Like you have, mm-hmm. like if you were writing, if in Rails, if you were going to use a Rails engine, it would be for like this entirely separate part of your application, like the forum or like a CMS or something like that. Whereas in Django, it seems like you're expected to have several apps make up your site. So right. you would, yeah, that's right. So that's you would right. have like that. a posts app, which would be like, you know, your blogging engine. Then you'd have a comments app, which would be the comments on the, well, maybe not that because they're very closely related, but, um, that, yeah, or, that yeah, part, yeah, yeah. I know you'd have several about. different yeah. apps. It just seems like a different way of doing. I'm not sure. What, I mean, yeah. again, and I've done the tutorial here, so I'm not ready to make any proclamations. Apps belong to a project, is that right? You have. A I think project, they call it a site. Apps. Yeah, a site. A yeah. site. Okay. So multiple apps belong to yeah. a site, and so like the admin section is an app in right. your site. Yeah, and it was. It seemed pretty nice. I just thought that it was. Interesting to see how like quickly because I'm not the only person that was like yeah sure I I will look at this it was just like there's some work out there to be done we seem to be doing some more of it so trying to pick it up seemed interesting and also as a Ruby and Rails programmer it's significantly less daunting than picking something up like Haskell, oh. um. <laughs> <laughs> which I've so we a subset of us in San Francisco has been working through Learn You a Haskell. And there's a Haskell course online through UPenn that seems to be open source. So we've been doing that too. And it's been fun because it's so different, but it's definitely not like learning Django and Python where you can do a tutorial and then build an app. It's like you do a tutorial and then maybe your code compiles if you're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I really liked doing that. We did the learn you a Haskell here as well. Did right. Gabe, is Gabe spearheading the learn you a Haskell? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's really good though, because he's done it before. So he has a little more knowledge than everyone else. So he right. can actually teach. Right. So that's yeah, nice. I really enjoyed it. And then I just, I guess another thing is like, I really enjoyed it, but then had no place to really practice it. Exactly. Whereas exactly. with Django, it seems like I can get into this and then I'll have a place to, I could very conceivably have a place to practice it because we have a client now. We have other clients that are possibly coming on board with Python projects. So the ability to then immediately apply it is like, yeah, it's not like something that's really going to push what I know and what I can do. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, a functional programming language or a strongly typed programming language, um, those types of things change the way you think about problems. I don't think this is going to be one of those things, but it might. I mean, that's what Sean and Mike talked about, right? Is seeing the different ways the different like, the Python and Ruby approach things and t- trying to take something from each of them. Right. So as you're learning, do you find yourself more interested in 
learning Django or Python, or is it worth making that distinction? Like, are you enjoying learning the new framework more or the new language more? Um, I think at this point... Are they the same thing right now? I don't think I'm drawing a <laughs> distinction at this point, yeah. right? Like, I'm doing enough. Like, right now, I'm kind of, when I have chance, I'm, like, kind of progressing through the Python tutorial, and then I'm also reading this book called Two Scoops of Django, which is, mm -hmm. like, Django, yeah. best, Django best practices from, yeah. you know, developers that are very good at Django. It has a really great cover. Yeah, it does. I and they gave me, it, when but... I bought it, they gave me stickers, too. I really like oh. the stickers of the color of the cover. Oh, cool. Um it's what we would it seems to be what we would write about rails if we wrote like a single here are all of our rails best practices which is kind of like what i think ruby science is a little bit mm -hmm. yeah so it's kind of similar to that but this is like much more seems more substantial to me and seems more i don't know readable cover to cover kind of thing yeah, Ruby Science is definitely kind of more like structured more like a book of recipes where you mm -hmm. identify the problem you're having and then you find the corresponding solutions. Right. And that's kind of how it's structured. It doesn't you, you can read it cover to cover, but it's less useful that way. Yeah. Uh so but it's interesting to see though that like so Gabe has moved from Boston to San Francisco and is taking yes. like the Haskell knowledge he picked up here from like Pat and Joe. And doing the Learn You Haskell stuff out there and that he's really maintaining an interest in that and doing it in San Francisco as well. And like I know Tony also moved out there. I know he's been interested in Haskell stuff too. So it's inter It's really cool to see that like cross office pollination thing. And who knows if we'll ever <laughs> like get a Haskell project booked. But like but that was like my first experience to something like maybe where mm -hmm. a value might exist or it might not. And we're not going to have like this this nil reference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just that was hugely influential, I think, and in how like I look at other problems and trying to make sure we squash nil and seeing if, you know, like in and now like picking up something like Rust and being ha, we mentioned Rust again uh, and being able to say like, <laughs> oh, option is just Haskell's maybe or Swift where they have optional and that's just maybe or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. All these different things. So I think that's interesting to see how that happens. So let me ask you, how many other people in your office are learning Django? Or interested in learning Django and Python? Um, we're not doing it together at this point. It was like last Friday where George kind of put out that call. Yeah, um, yeah, I saw It that. seemed to be like three or four people were kind of openly saying that they're interested in doing that. We have other people who have done it in the past and didn't speak up. So I don't know if they're just not interested in it or they are doing other things or, mm -hmm. you know, just didn't see the thread or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah. But yeah, there seems to be like three or four people, a couple other people from other offices as well. Like there seemed to be a decent amount of interest in it. And I think probably spurred by the fact that there's potential work in it. Yeah, I'm just curious about kind of the, not adoption rates, because you're not really adopting a new technology, but interest levels. Like, how do you gauge interest levels in a group around a new tool or technology? Like, is I wonder if George is keeping track of that in any way. Hmm, Yeah. That'd be, I mean, we do have kind of like our inside ThoughtBot here. We do have like Hub has skills and you can declare that you are like interested in a technology by marking yourself as like an apprentice in that technology. Yes, yes, um, I did that actually with Django. Right, that's what I did with Django as well to like signal that like I'm kind of interested in this and let's see where it goes. And then I guess you could measure that change over time to see if like more people are adding it as an apprentice skill, if anybody's going from apprentice to billable on it, that type of thing. And right. it's also going to be interesting to see how we make the decision that somebody is billable on a yes. different type of project. 
Yeah. And we've had these in other things as well, like Ember projects, Angular projects, right? Like when you're first getting onboarded with that type of technology, how, like, when are you billable in it? Right. And I think it's a comfort kind of thing. Like with Ember and Angular, like I did an Angular, I was on an Angular project before I'd ever done Angular before. Mm-hmm. But I had done plenty of JavaScript, right? Mm-hmm. So like that's all it is, is JavaScript and you learn a couple things. And there were two other people on the, two other developers on the project who had done Angular before. So it's kind of like a perfect storm of like, okay, you know JavaScript, you're interested in knowing Angular. These people know Angular. It's an Angular project. Go. Yeah. And it worked out fine. But if it had been just me, right, I would have been like, well, I don't, I don't know. I think <laughs> I, I could use this. one other person. So I think that's probably the best way to do it if you can yeah. is like have somebody work with somebody who's done it before, even potentially as an apprentice on that project for like a week and then start billing after that or, you know, don't bill for a couple of weeks and then start billing on the next project, that kind of thing. Yeah. What other frameworks or languages are people coalescing around in general? Do you know? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, I think that's where like the differences in the offices kind of come out. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's just because you get somebody in an office locally who's really interested in something and passionate about it and they share it with the people around like directly around them, like at lunch or whatever. Right. Yep. Or on Fridays when people are doing investment time. Um, so I think like in Boston, we had a long period where we were really into Haskell and Joe is still here and really into Haskell, but several of the people who were really into Haskell are no longer working in this office, right? Pat moved on from ThoughtBot and then, you know, Gordon's moving and Tony's moving and Pat and Gabe has moved, right? Right, So it's, right. it'll be interesting to see if that interest kind of like, maybe this is all part of their plan is like, <laughs> we will spread out over other ThoughtBot offices and spread the Haskell. <laughs> the love, Haskell right? diaspora. Right. And then... So there's Haskell. Um, Ember, I feel like, is pretty popular in the Boston office anyway. There's like a handful of people that are billable on Ember work that we're taking more and more on. Um, we did a Ember lightning, we're calling them lightning workshops, which is just like right. yeah. it's not something that the person teaching the workshop has to like really plan out too far in advance. Like they just kind of walk you through something in an afternoon. The idea yeah. is supposed to be like it's not a huge burden on them and it's something you can do in an afternoon. So that was attended by like, I feel like most of the developers in, in Boston. And again, that might be one of those things where like everybody's seeing that we're booking more of this work. So making yourself billable on that work is prudent. And, and it's also like something that's interesting, right? Ember is the more Railsy of the JavaScript framework. So it's kind of a natural fit for sure. a lot of us, I think. But I, I do think it was interesting, like when Angular and Ember were both kind of first taking off there was like a strong preference from some other offices like in San Francisco. I know there were a number of people and from I think Sean in Denver was also like a big proponent of doing Angular work. And there were people in Boston who were very good with Backbone and Backbone was very clearly kind of on its way down. Right. Yep. Um, And some people who wanted to try Ember. And there were discussions around like, should we standardize? Like we standardized on Rails. Should we standardize on Angular? Should we standardize on Ember? Right. Um, Right. What do you think about that? That is a great question. So it's kind of, I can't make a fully informed, I don't have a fully informed opinion because I've never used Ember. Uh, Actually, that's not true. I technically worked on one project where there was an Ember app, but it was an older version of Ember and I barely touched it and the organization didn't seem super conventional. So I don't think I really learned anything there is what I'm saying. I have worked on several projects using Angular. And I've seen Angular used 
in just a standalone JavaScript application as the framework for that application. And I've also seen it used more as a library, as you would think of a library being used, to add interactive functionality and just kind of like instead of using jQuery, using Angular to define view components that are, you know, like that do cool things. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? Does that yes. make sense? Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. like, Angular doesn't have to take over your whole site, right? Yes, you can, you exactly. can use it in a tiny little area, whereas I'm not sure that that's the case with Ember. It's right. not from what I hear, right. right? Yep. So I think at this point, my sense is that it wouldn't really make sense to standardize on either because they can be used in completely different ways. Like you might want to use something like Angular instead of jQuery and you don't have that option with Ember. But if you want to build a really robust standalone JavaScript application, then maybe Ember is the way to go. Right. Those are kind of my thoughts. I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to get to the spot as a company where we're like, we do Rails and we do this other thing. And those are like, we do Rails and we do Ember and we don't do Angular and we don't do, <laughs> right? Like right. I think at this point, the company is big enough to support groups of people who want to do different things. Yeah. You know, we're 80 some odd people now. Um, yeah. And a good chunk of those are developers. Like if we have people that want to do Django projects, we can support that. If we have people that want to do Angular projects, great. If we have people that want to do Ember projects, great. And it's to our advantage really not, I think maybe to our advantage not to specialize because we can take on the different types of work that come. Yeah, I agree. I think it's more beneficial to have a good understanding of how the different frameworks and libraries can be used than to kind of pick one and stick with it regardless of the context. Yeah. But the counterpoint to that is like ThoughtBot became known in the Rails community by just being by like throwing everything at Rails, right? And being like, this is what we're going to do. And then it wasn't, I think Chad would be the first to admit that it wasn't like a stroke of like insight that he was like, I'm going to hitch our wagon to Rails. It was just like, we like doing Rails. True, true, true. And it yeah. happened to take off, right? That was the lucky moment. Right. Yes. Is it yeah. like it happened to take off? And I think that Chad would agree with that. Yeah. The funny thing about these JavaScript libraries and frameworks is that within ThoughtBot, there are factions of people who really dislike one and really dislike the other <laughs> or really like one or the other. And really so, dislike all of them, too. We have or, that yeah, faction. Just like, <laughs> Any JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, And it's a much, much bigger company. There are a lot more people. So achieving consensus around standardizing on one or the other would be a lot harder, I think. Yeah. Unless it were a total executive decision, but then nobody would really be happy with that. Right. The other thing I think is interesting is like beyond just a language and framework thing, like we talked about Django and Ember and Python or whatever, right? We talked about these high level things, which are, I think, things that most people working in like a product company, they don't have a chance to make that decision twice, right? Yep. We get the decision. We are lucky enough to get like new projects that come along every three to six months or whatever, maybe even shorter, depending on the length of your project. Right. So you can make that decision again. And that's pretty unique, I feel like, for most people doing development work. But there are things that people ask us like, oh, how did you pick that you're going to use active model serializers rather than JBuilder mm -hmm. or that you're going to use whatever like how do you how do we adopt something in suspenders how do we which suspenders is like our if you don't know about it it's our rails like template that we start rails projects with what has been your experience with that 
Well, <laughs> so yes, my experience is that yes, we, we definitely do get asked that question a lot. How do we pick the tools we use? And in fact, this is something that my colleagues, my ThoughtBot colleagues and I were just, we were just going through this process this morning for picking um, an admin tool for our client project. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow when we go meet with the client, we are, we are going to have to discuss our decision and explain, well, not our decision, but our recommendation and explain why we think that this recommendation is the best way to move forward. So it's definitely because it's something that we have to do a lot and we have to explain a lot and communicate about a lot to lots of people. I think we have a really robust process for making those kinds of decisions. On client projects, I feel like there's always a lot of conversation around what would be the most appropriate tool for X, Y, or Z. And those conversations include the whole team. Well, they'll include all of the, all of the relevant parties. So all of the ThoughtBot developers and designers, if relevant, and the client stakeholders. And in my experience, we usually achieve consensus before moving forward. Like, I don't think that historically, if it's a feature or a tool that the client cares a lot about and wants to be involved in the decision making, then we make sure that they're on board before implementing. Yeah. I mean, that's been my experience as well. And it's like, again, we have the ability to lean on like experiences from other teammates. Like I think like the admin interface discussion was happening yesterday as well in mm -hmm. our chat rooms where people are like, what are your yep. experiences with this one? What are your experiences about that? What, what about building our own? What about doing an inline admin? What about doing all these different options? And because we have, you know, 85 people or whatever, many of them developers, like yeah. we all have a lot of experience with these things. So being able to like articulate our past experiences with them and then kind of give some recommendations. I think it's it's valuable to me when I'm working on projects either alone or with one or two other developers to just be able to like tap the knowledge of like the 85 yeah. other people here, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So that helps. And then I think like admin interfaces is one of these areas where I don't think we found like anything that works fantastically for <laughs> all of our use cases. Like some yeah. projects, one feels better than the other. Yep, absolutely. It's very context dependent and depends on the requirements. But we so. do we do have other places like the stuff that's in suspenders is like yep. stuff yep. that we've been like, we've tried X, Y and Z. And for most projects, we feel like X is a good enough default, like delayed jobs. Yes. Delayed yep. job is in there and people like it's not the like hot thing to use for background jobs, but it works. And it meets most of the requirements for like doing something like in the background, doing something later, doing something, you know, it just, it handles basically everything and it's not going to give you weird concurrency issues like some of the other ones do. So that's been like just a decision that's made for us. And you kind of like go against that knowingly at your peril, like not like you, when you're ready to like make a change, like you're oh, this project, I'm going to use sidekick, you know why you're making that decision. It's not just yeah. that like something like, well, I don't know, it seemed interesting. And there are, we definitely do have experiments. Like we have a whole research board, right? Where yeah. if you want to do something that's not like our standard Rails app thing, right? Maybe you're going to change out one of the dependencies or maybe you're thinking about like taking on this new dependency that's like, I'm trying to come up with an example. Anyway, um, you can like- I think like, we have one for Slim right now. Slim versus Hamel right. and ERB. That's right. a good concrete example. Right. ERB is our standard, right? Yep. 
Yeah. And so right now there's some people who are looking at potentially moving to slim and using slim as a default. So, right. So that gets like somebody spells out and it's gotten a little more like in the past, you just added a card that was like slim and then you added some people <laughs> on it and they talked about their experiences and then maybe it was marked as a success. And that would mean like any number of things. A success could be like, we read a blog post about it, or it could be like, we put it in suspenders. And I think that what's interesting is that now it's moved a little more like you're asked to kind of specify upfront on that research card, like, what are you testing? Why are you testing it? What do you expect you'll get out of it? And like, if this is a success, what do we do then, right? Like, right. What, what does success look like? And then what do we do with a success? Yes. Um, and that, so upfront, you're like, you're, you're spelling out what you expect to get out of this. And like, frankly, the research board kind of like, there's a lot of stuff in there and most of it's stale, but if it's stale, it's probably stale for a reason. So yeah. it's like, you know, it's not harming anything to really have a bunch of stale things except the performance when you load that board. Um, <laughs> and finding cards. And finding cards, <laughs> right. <laughs> Again, I think that's interesting. And it comes up a lot in like when we're having these conversations about like I need a library that does X. Like we can we can search that board and search even the archived cards or whatever and say like, oh, we tried that. Here are our experiences with it. Like it came up with me with TurboLinks recently. Like mm -hmm. we had decided a couple of years ago that we weren't going to be using TurboLinks. And I was like, well, why did we decide that? Right. Like I've never used TurboLinks because we decided as a company that we weren't going to use it. And I know I wasn't the one who gave it a shot. Right. So to be able to go back to the Trello board and look at what people had written and documented as reasons they weren't, they were choosing not to use it was really interesting because then I was able to look at it and be like, okay, well, these reasons have changed. So, you know, these things have gotten better in the year since we made this decision or the two years since we made this decision and then reopen it and be like, you know. Nice. This, did you? Yes, I think I did reopen it. <laughs> I don't I forget what the status of it is, but basically oh. my my conclusion was like it can make sense for some projects. I don't think it's a great default for various reasons. I think I just talked about this on the show with Sean, but mostly just yeah. that like it can be surprising if you don't know you're using it. So making yeah. it a default that happens automatically can really screw you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, I, but I think it's a fine thing to like, well, I need a little performance boost here. I'm willing to do this. Like we did it on a project that was really trying to like eke out every last bit of performance and it worked. It helped. So yeah, um, those things are good. So let me ask you, how long has the research board been an institution at ThoughtBot? Has it as, like as long as... As long as I've been here, I think. Yeah. yeah. We've been, I think you started around not too long after I did, maybe, or even before, right? Uh, I started in January of 2013. Yeah. So you're like a month before me or two months oh, before Oh, really? Me. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize I that. So. That's cool. Yeah. So you've been here a little longer than I have. So it's been here since at least since you've been here and at least since I've been here. Right yeah, now. yeah. I'm as sure long it, as I can I'm remember. sure it wasn't always Trello. I don't know if there was something before Trello because I think Trello, our usage of Trello dates to just around the time we started as well. Yeah. Um, but everything goes in. So much stuff goes in there. There's been like office chairs that go in there and people yes. like try out the office There's, chairs. Oh my gosh. Uh, there is right now a card for the, um, it's like a bike desk here in san francisco it's 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 um yeah it's a bike and a desk i haven't tried it yet i don't know how else to describe it it's just like a stationary bike with something you can put your laptop on yeah anyway there's a research card for that people have commented on it with their opinions right. um a lot of people are saying that you can't really wear jeans when <laughs> when you're on it. <laughs> not not the right. That doesn't attire. that doesn't seem like the bike's fault though. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, 
Um, <laughs> Got my bike. I haven't, I haven't tried it yet because I keep forgetting to not wear jeans, you know, mm. like, and I'm not going to bring other pants. <laughs> I want to wear. go work over here. I got to change. Hang on. Yeah. Let me go put on my Lycra. BRB. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'll, yeah, like, I'll be on that hangout in just a minute <laughs> from my bike desk. <laughs> anyway, so I have a story about a research card. Yeah. And it's, it has a happy ending. It's a happy story with a happy ending because the research card was a success. So how much have you, well, I guess my question is really how recently have you worked on a Rails application that exposes a JSON API? Um, I think just about every Rails application I've ever worked on has some form of API, but none of them in the last six months probably have been eight, like that as one of the chief things it does, right? Like it might have a couple endpoints that expose a JSON API, but it's been since early this year that I've that I've worked on like a um, API heavy yes. application. Me too. I have not worked on an API heavy application in probably nine months or more. But last year, I was working on any, a very API-heavy application. That's, that's all we were building on the back end was uh, JSON API. And we found that we wanted to be able to have a workflow while we were doing TDD, while we were testing, to verify that the responses that were getting returned by our API endpoints adhered to the schema that our clients, our client applications expected. So I think the first thing we did was we implemented this RSpec tag that a former ThoughtBotter, Harlow Ward, made, which basically hooked into your RSpec request specs and checked to see if the request and the response both adhere to a predefined schema. And I can't remember, unfortunately, I can't remember the exact API. And I'm just like telling this whole history because of the evolution, the evolution of the workflows. Well, the, ev the workflow didn't really evolve, but the evolution of the implementation, I think, is really interesting. So this thing started out as an RSpec tag that made it so you could hook into your tests and and make assertions about the request and the response in your test scenario. Then I was pairing last, not this past June, but the June before, I was pair programming with Damien in the New York office when I was visiting the New York office randomly for a week just for fun. And we thought, this is nice, but it's a little magical. Like it's, it, We don't have a lot of control over what's going on. Wouldn't it be nicer if we just had an RSpec matcher? That was like expect response body to match response schema user. And I think that was literally the conversation we had. And uh, we started implementing it. And it took me a while to implement it because JSON schema is not easy to write. But eventually, basically implemented exactly that, an RSpec matcher that uses JSON schemas, that is schemas defined according to the JSON schema specification right. <laughs> and the JSON schema gem to validate the response in a request spec against a predefined schema. I published a blog post 
outlining that implementation a year ago in September of last year. And I also created a research card because I wanted to see how it worked for other people on different projects. So the implementation I came up with was used on a couple other projects with some success. But the next evolution of this idea was a gem that our colleague Sean Doyle in Philadelphia made. So he was inspired to take this basically fragment of code that's just this custom R spec matcher and package it as a gem to make it easier to use in the environment of a Rails application. So he did that. And then I think like I kind of tried to get people to comment on the research card, talking about their experience using the matcher or the gem or whatever. But for whatever reason, people weren't really providing feedback. And I think it was because people just weren't using it or weren't on projects where it could be used. I certainly wasn't. Like after that project, I wasn't on another one where I could use the matcher for months and months and months. But fast forward to a week ago, suddenly, (laughs) not out of nowhere, but it felt like pretty suddenly I learned through conversation in Slack and on Trello that some variation of the RSpec matcher or the gem has been used across eight different teams in at least four different offices at ThoughtBot. Cool. Yeah. So I think what's interesting about this story is like it took kind of a long time (laughs) to, to achieve consensus that this is something that is useful. And in the end, it's not even totally clear which implementation is more useful. I think the gem is more useful because we mostly do Rails applications. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like a perfect story of like, you were on an application, you had a problem, you solved the problem. And then like the blog post came next, you said, right? So it's like, yep, you documented like what you had learned in the blog post, right? And then as you're like exposing more people to this, the idea gets refined and eventually made into like a reusable tool Yep. in a gem, in the form yep. of a gem. And like the fact that like you were traveling from office to office, visiting offices or whatever helped as well because you were able to like take this to other teams directly and be like, oh, I have a thing. Like while we're doing this, I know a thing we can do, right? Versus like if I were doing that here, I'd have to remember that you wrote that thing, go look up the blog post or look up the research card or whatever. So like you having direct involvement there kind of helped move that along, I feel like. And like maybe the reason why you felt like it took a while was just because, you know, the number of projects where that was appropriate weren't weren't like super high, right? Or like combined with the knowledge that people had that it was something they could do, right? Right. I do wonder though, I think the fact that it took so long speaks a little bit to the need for there to be someone championing adoption of the tool or if not championing adoption, then at least spreading, like uh, increasing awareness that it exists for people who might need something like it. Mm -hmm. And there was a long period where I definitely was not doing that at all. And so I, I wonder if I or Sean or Damien had been doing more of that, maybe, maybe we would have reach this conclusion sooner. I don't know. 
Yeah, I I don't. It's tough. Like, what are you supposed to do? Are you just supposed to like every once in a while ping in Slack and be like, "Is anybody yeah. using building a JSON <laughs> API that has a JSON schema?" Because I have the project for you, and I it know. might it might actually require like getting more people on board with JSON schema as a thing, right? Oh yeah, because um, sure. once you have the JSON schema, this becomes something that clearly you're like, "Oh, this is interesting. I could get this. I get these types of tests for like the hard part about all this seems to be." getting the schema right yeah yeah no you're absolutely right and i'm totally taking that for granted because it's been so long since i struggled with writing a json schema but it's true it's like it's quite a bit of work up front right but it is it comes in handy like and i don't know if this was the case on your project or not but it comes in handy if you've got like two teams working on the api you got one team working on the api and one team working on whatever's going to consume the api having an agreement on the schema before like Yep. Either before or like as you are iterating, right, means that you don't have to hit each other to like constantly to like check, like yeah. is this the right type? Like you just you like this is the con. You have a contract basically, yeah. Um, and you're both going to uphold that contract, and you can feel a little more confident in that. Yeah. So I think like the process I just described is how the research board works when it works well. Mm-hmm. But something you alluded to earlier is how cards can just kind of sit for a long time. Right. And I think this card was in danger of doing that. And something I also didn't realize until pretty recently was that uh, this this is going to sound dumb, but I thought there was someone in charge of the board who was like in charge of checking in on the experiments and like moving them along. And then I realized that that person is whoever made the card. <laughs> right. It, 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 there's there's a centralized administration of it. I think Joe used to do a lot of that. Our CTO at various times, Prem has kind of been bugged by the number of cards that are hanging around, and he did some stuff like. I think a few months ago, any card I had any knowledge of at all, I was like, what's going on with this? This is a failure. We, you know, we never use this market as a fail. Move it on. Right. So like at various points, I think different people become like, oh, I'm looking for something to do on Friday. Maybe I can remind people that they have these things hanging out here, that kind of thing. Right. But both because of the number of people we are and the number of cards that are there, that's kind of a daunting. And like you don't want to draw an artificial boundary just because something's been out there a long time. Like there might be some yeah. really great ideas in there that we just haven't had enough repetition with because, you know, the problem didn't come along or when it did come along, we didn't know about it. So I think that's an interesting, like, how do we surface that, like, there are projects that are having these problems and hook them up with potential solutions that are hanging out in research or in, you know, tool development is another thing we have where, like, if you are developing something for internal use or external, eventually external use, you can document it there. Like, how do we line these things up? Like, Caleb Thompson and I, one of our coworkers, wrote a gem called Scenic, which is for doing database views and Rails applications. Specifically, its advantage over some of the other stuff is it tries to version your database views like you would anything else. So you can like roll back between different versions of the view without having to like rewrite the entire view in your script for going down and going up, stuff like that. Anyway, I feel like database views are something that more apps could get use out of, right? Mm-hmm. You can make you can either write really complex active record or you can just write some SQL that's a little easier, <laughs> create and uh-huh. create a active and create an, you know, an active record model based off of that and use that, you know, reports or whatever. Um, but I think that that's a problem of like it's another one of those problems where like yes, a lot of apps have this issue, but people are a like I think in general a little like hesitant in picking up extensions to schema 
like this creates create view statements in your migrations. And I think people are a little, and probably rightfully so, hesitant in picking up those types of extensions because things can go wrong. Mm. And then B, like, do they like have never used a database view before, or haven't used one in Rails before, um, yeah. don't know what problems they can solve with them, that type of thing. So like this week I'm not on any client projects and I happen to be like pitching in on Upcase and there was a performance problem somewhere and I was like, oh, I could solve this. So let, let me think. And I started writing the active record out and I was like, oh, this is a pain to do an active record. <laughs> this will be way easier as a view. <laughs> and so like, yeah. I think that that, and, and I think that that's kind of similar to your experience of like working directly with other people, right? So I'm working directly on a project that a few other people work on. I submit that pull request and they go, oh, I didn't know about this, right? Like yeah. ben, ben was like, oh, I'd never heard about this scenic thing before. Interesting, yeah. right? So I think that that is just like taking it to other coworkers direct, like you taking it to other coworkers directly is going to yeah. have to, is kind of have to, how it, how it has to work. Yeah. Taking it to them directly when they have the problem that it solves. Right. Like it's one thing, like I try to keep up on what's it happening on the research board. So I know when there are things hanging out, but I don't think that a lot of people do. And I certainly don't remember everything that's on there. There's, you know, any, a good number of stuff on there. Yeah. But I think that this is all like a process that people could like, like we were talking about earlier, like trying out Python and Django, like, again, that's not something you're probably going to be making us like, if you're in a product company, you're not just all of a sudden going to start writing what you were doing today in Python tomorrow. But you may want to like try out a gem in one area of your application and you can like document that somewhere. It doesn't have to be a Trello research board or whatever, right? Just like write, yeah. a, write about what it is that you liked and didn't like about it, put it in some sort of central place so that another team in your same company or whatever can benefit from this knowledge. Like I know at my previous jobs, I worked at companies with like hundreds of different developing, hundreds of different developers in like dozens of teams and there was very little crosstalk, right? Oh, wow. Um, so it was, we were all kind of reinventing the wheel. And then you would talk to someone and be like, oh, we tried that six months ago. It was terrible. Don't do that. Uh, like, and you're like, oh. <laughs> if oh, I had okay. known. Right. Like if I had known. Like so having one place to kind of like document what has been successful, what hasn't, and not necessarily what hasn't, never use it, but what hasn't, here's why it didn't work. If you want to take another look at this, you know, don't reinvent the wheel and for the parts that we did, but maybe you have another way to look at this, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's also interesting in the, like, in the case of something like Django, it's not like we're evaluating it as we would a Ruby gem, right? Or an RSpec matcher or workflow. We're evaluating it as something we would want to work in, I guess. And the reason we're doing that is because we already know that there's demand for it. So I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's an evaluation process that happens for tools like Django and there's a really different kind of evaluation process that happens for things like slim. And we have a defined process for evaluating things like slim. That's the research board, but evaluating things like Haskell and Django and like to what degree do we want to be working in those languages and frameworks? That seems a lot more fuzzy and touchy feely and dependent on offices and, and individuals. And I guess I'm curious if that process will become more formalized at all, or I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it needs to be. It's just interesting that it is different from what we do on the research Trello board. I, I, my impression of it is it's going to come down to the work, right? Like we could all get together and all 80 of us could decide we want to do Haskell projects. But if nobody's, <laughs> if nobody's going out and getting a Haskell project, it's not yeah. going to happen, right? Can you imagine Basecamp? 
<laughs> we'll re- rewrite Basecamp on Haskell. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> so I think what has to happen is like there's some sort of like internal usage of it where you're like, okay, I like doing this. I would like to do more. And if you want to do more, you can't just wait for it to happen, right? You have to yeah. go and make it happen. So you have to go and like, you know, find some little bit of an existing internal service you can write in whatever the new giant tool you want to use is or like go out and find a client that will pay us to do something right <laughs> right um and i think that's kind of how it is gonna have to take off and i know that like for haskell work you know we've tried that at various points but it hasn't worked out we've been close to a couple but it just hasn't worked out yet yeah. um but for python work for whatever reason like people do come to us for that on occasion so you know that's probably going to take off a little better than haskell has so far anyway mm-hmm. what do you want to do <laughs> what do i want to do yeah that you're not doing yet um Oh, um, that's a really good question. I don't think I would want to write Haskell all the time. Well, I'm like really bad at it right now. So (laughs) (laughs) I would have to spend a lot more time getting comfortable with Haskell to want to write it in production applications. I would like to, I think more than language or framework, I'm interested in doing projects that aren't CRUD apps. So like data pipeline, a data pipeline would be fun. Mm an ETL pipeline. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I can't but, say, I honestly can't say that I have like a burning desire to like do a certain type of project. Like I have things I'm interested in, like I'd love to write some Rust or whatever, but mm-hmm. I'm like, if it came along, that'd be great. But I'm not also like running out there looking for those types of projects right now. I think personally, like right now, what I'm interested in more is like the consulting side of it and how do we like get people to build products the way we want them to build them like how do we sell people on mvps how do we help people cut scope how do we like how do we help people simplify things and still be left with an interesting project so those are like the higher level things i find myself more doing and i'm to the point now where i'm just like okay python's another tool i can do this in yeah right and it would give me exposure to more stuff and it's interesting it's fun like it's something to noodle around with on a friday or whatever so that's where i'm at anyway that's cool been going for a while we should probably wrap up oh yeah see how this is how this happens you think like oh we're just gonna do 30 minutes and then it's an hour later (laughs) show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 36 as always ratings and reviews on itunes are greatly appreciated you can tweet us your feedback as well at underscore bikeshed or email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm thanks for listening to bikeshed and we'll see you again next time